Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball Episode 4. I am your host, Howard Megdahl, here to remind you that you should go ahead and subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB. We are a proud member of the Locked On Podcast Network. You can also uh, like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. Uh, here to join us today is, we had an earlier conversation about it, the Dean, President, the um, autocratic but benevolent head of women's basketball uh, here in the media, Doug Feinberg of the Associated Press. Doug, any of these titles you care to uh, take on? You know, I'm happy with whatever you want to call me. All the above, none of the above. As long as the dictator's not in there, I'm, I'm perfectly fine with anything you want to call me. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, we'll keep it democratic then. The place I'd love to start is just if you could take me through what last night was like. You know, to the atmosphere, the experience at Gamble Pavilion. You're there for number two Baylor versus number three Connecticut. What were the expectations you feel like going in and what was the atmosphere like? You know, Howard, it's funny. I've covered women's basketball now for about 10 years, about a decade. And one of the rare times I've been at Connecticut over that span where I went to a game and didn't have a feeling how it was going to end, <laughs> which was such a refreshing feeling. I mean, they played games up there before where you're like, you knew there could be a good game. And they played Notre Dame a few years back or, or Baylor a few years back when they had Griner and Sims that you didn't know how it was going to end, you thought, but somehow it always kind of ended up how you, it, everyone expected but last night, I went up there and, and really thought Baylor was going was gonna to end the streak. I thought they were going to be the team to, to knock off Connecticut finally. And the crowd was into it right from the start. It was, it was a near sellout. The fans were, were screaming and yelling every play. It, it, was, it was exciting. It was a great atmosphere for a great women's basketball game. And sure enough, for the first 36 minutes, it was a, a very great, tight game. And then UConn was what UConn's done for the last decade and found a way to win. Do you think the atmosphere had anything to do with the fact that it really felt like the streak was on the line last night in a way that, you know, maybe we didn't have those, uh, that factor for really, let's say, since Brianna Stewart was in high school? Um, a combination. I mean, they, they raised the banner last night and unveiled the banner for the championship last year. So that, that brought extra fans, I think, just to celebrate one more time what they accomplished last season. Um, I think it might have played into it. I mean, there was a huge student um, section there last night, a vocal student section. I think that also might have factored in that, hey, they knew it was a big game. There's a chance UConn could you lose, and they wanted to be there to support their team. And it's the first time they had a home game this year. There was only their, whatever, their second game. So, yeah, yeah all that put together, I think it really added to make it a very, very fun, exciting atmosphere. It, there really is something about celebrating the two-year anniversary of your last loss by not losing that is uh, particularly UConn women's basketball, I think. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense that there would be a celebration that goes along with that. I, I'd like to get into the specifics of it, though. The, the number one thing that jumps out at me is that, and I think you felt the same way, Baylor should have on paper had an enormous advantage on the interior uh, in a way that Baylor, quite frankly, has an advantage on the interior over virtually every team they're going to play this year. It didn't manifest itself that way. Uh, how do you how do you account for that? Well, you know, I wish I could account for that. Uh, I'm not the only one because Coach Mulkey after the game was wondering why they didn't go inside more, <laughs> which with a six foot seven girl and Kalani Brown, they should have. But she got in quick foul trouble. She she came off the bench, and I think she had two fouls in four minutes of playing time in the in the first quarter, which sort of hampered her game. 
So that probably factored into it, at least taking her out of the mix. And while UConn may not be big, they're athletic at those positions. I mean, Gabby Williams was a six-foot-plus high jumper in high school, so she can definitely get off the floor and, and guard interior uh, post players and, and the interior post pass. But I, I wish I knew. I mean, they, they started the second half with two straight baskets inside. They're like, okay, they're going to establish their dominance inside now. UConn's in a lot of trouble. But then again, they went away from it. And it's yeah. like, what are you doing? Like, that's your strength. That's what you're known for. Yet they couldn't really establish it. And kudos to UConn's defense for doing a great job defending the post. But you have to wonder what was missing. And I think, as uh, Coach Mulkey said yesterday after the game, we're going to look at tape and see what went on there, why we couldn't feed the post more. So it's really, really dangerous to take anything from two games. But just to that point, the fact that, you know, not only against Baylor, but, you know, against Shaq Thomas and Florida State, does it seem as if the combination of Gabby Williams, who, like, like you said, is undersized but seems to have the athleticism to make up for it, and Natalie Butler, who seemed to give team minutes to UConn in both of the first two games, that that combination may be the type of interior rim protection and rebounding that a lot of people didn't think UConn was necessarily going to have this year? Well, also, you have to throw Collier in there, I think, as well. Yeah. Somebody who in game one had the big block on Shaq Thomas to, to preserve the victory. But – Rim protection is probably a strong word, and I think they were out-rebounding last night also. Mm-hmm. So they, they will hold the fort or hold the line defensively might be a better way to look at it. I mean, I know you're a huge fan of Kia Stokes, and I know you're a huge fan of Brianna Stewart, and they were rim protectors. I right. don't know if I'd use those words to describe um, any of the, the group we just were talking about. I mean, I guess Collier had four blocks the first game, so she can be a, a rim protector. But it's more about positioning and, and – athleticism and fast feet to be able to defend the post. And that's what the, the three of them were able to do. I mean, Butler did a great job off the bench in both games. So I, I think it, it's it's been a good start for UConn. I mean, we can go to the overreaction world and say they're 2-0 and against two top 12 teams and they're going to go undefeated and that's the end of that. And they're, they're, they're the best team in the history of the sport again. But I think it's only two games and I think everyone's going to get better. It was a big stage last night. Baylor was on the road. They had some calls going against them early on with the foul trouble. So I think UConn is good in the post, but we need more than two games to see if these, these players they have now can actually be rim protectors and allow only one shot because they got out-rebounded, and that's a big thing going down the road as teams play in their season and get more accustomed to each other that if you can't, you can't give up 10, 15 second-chance shots or second-second uh, shots on offense and expect to win games. No, no question about it. And I guess what, what struck me is they were out-rebounded, but – not by a lot against a Baylor team where that you would, I think, argue that that is their biggest strength coming into the season, at least on paper. And they were even, I think it was 38-38 against Florida State as well. But realistically, UConn doesn't necessarily need to out-rebound people to win. They need to do enough to be able to give opportunities on the perimeter, it seems to me, you know, whether whether it's Crystal Dangerfield, who we should get to in a minute, uh, or, or, or Taylor Samuelson, or even Kia Nurse, who, I mean, again, what's most remarkable to me is the two wins over top 12 opponents come with Kia Nurse having, I believe, five and eight points. So from that perspective, if it's enough, I think that'll be very, very interesting. But of course, there's a real question is what we saw last night with Crystal Dangerfield what you can expect from her over the long term or some approximation of it? What, you know, what are your thoughts on her at this point? 
Well, it's the first time I saw her play live. I, I wasn't at Florida State, but I mean, she's impressive. She is a, a quick, quick guard. Um, and I mean, she's not afraid to take the big shot, which is something as a freshman we would maybe not expect right away. But I mean, she hit, hit some huge threes last night for them, had some couple floaters also. She's fun to watch. I mean, she's a, she's going to be a wonderful player for them. It's funny. Post game, someone asked, you know, you know, an inevitable comparison two games in hmm. her to Mariah Jefferson. And he laughed at that, of course, as, as Gino always does. Right. And gave actually a really good answer that at this point in their career, so two games in, Dangerfield, Dangerfield is farther ahead than Jefferson was. Yeah. Doesn't mean it's going to finish that way, of course, but two games in, Dangerfield has done more for UConn in her first two games of her career than Jefferson did. And, of course, what's fascinating about that is the other real question mark, at least in my mind, as it related to Connecticut, was – who was going to take the reins and be the person who was the go-to for UConn down the stretch in games? Uh, and we don't really have any more of an answer to that than we did. It seemed to me going in that the best, likeliest argument could be made for Tia Nurse, who did not do it in either of the first two games. Uh, and it was Nafisa Collier in game one against Florida State and Crystal Dangerfield last night. And so I guess my question to you is, do you think that you can win a national title without a singular designation of that person here uh, in the 2016-2017 landscape? Well, I'll answer that question looking back at the history of them and the fact that the last couple of years, how many close games did they have? Right. A handful, maybe? How many games come down to the last minute? Two or three, maybe? I mean, the Maryland game sticks on my mind mm -hmm. and maybe a Notre Dame game here or there, but not too many of them. So you never really saw who was the person when you need a bucket in the last minute, who was going to get it. We all assumed it was going to be Brianna Stewart, obviously, because she was unbelievable mm -hmm. or Jefferson or talk. I mean, you, you had three choices there, but how often do we have to actually see that happen for them? When did it come down to it? And yet now two games into this season, we saw the, the, the first game, uh, Collier made the great plays down the stretch to help him get the win. And then the second game, it was crystal Dangerfield. So there may not be that one person to, you know what, a tie game with four seconds left, who's going to hit the shot? It may be one of five people for them, and that make make them more dangerous because you don't know who it's going to be, and they're not afraid to take that shot, any of them. Oh, it's really interesting because you're right, and, and, and the comparison to be made to the UConn teams of the recent past, they're not the same, obviously, in terms of talent, but they are similar in that, you're right, there are a lot of different people you can go to down the stretch. I I've been thinking about this UConn team less in terms of the teams at UConn that came before it and more in comparison to the other teams that they're playing this year. But you're absolutely right. There's there's a danger there that you can't prepare for a single person to beat you. And obviously, Baylor would not have been in any position to prepare for Crystal Dangerfield to be the one that beat them. And you can make the argument that without her performance, that it simply wouldn't have happened. So I, I think you make a really good point about that. I, I don't want to lose sight of Baylor here, uh, especially early on. What you think they take away from this, number one, uh, number, number one question to my mind coming out of this is, how was UConn able to shut down Nina Davis to the extent they were? And how does Baylor avoid that happening going forward? Well, a couple things about Baylor. I was actually a little surprised at their body language in the postgame. It almost looked like they, watching from the audience postgame, that they were defeated like they just lost a national championship game or mm. a Big 12 title game. I mean, 
let's be honest, Howard, it was game three of the regular season in November. This game was great for people like us, but in the scheme of things, I'm sure both coaches wouldn't mind losing just to say, have film say, hey, this is what we need to work on for us the rest of the season to get better. Yeah. Kim Mulkey has that now. And as she said, we need to work on our post game, feeding the post, make sure that happens. We need to work on our toughness down the stretch. We just weren't tough. So Baylor, I think, is going to come out very strong from this game. That They played a tough road environment. They, they were in the game for 36 minutes or 35 minutes, uh, neck and neck with UConn. They were down and rallied. So they, they have a lot of positives. And they're one of the best five teams in the country, no doubt. No question. So I think they get a, they're going to gain a lot of valuable experience from last night's loss. As far as Davis goes, I don't know. I mean, someone asked her, Kim, postgame, if Davis was hurt. And she said uh, pretty quickly, no, no, she's fine. No injuries, nothing that I know of. Hmm. And she just looked out of sorts. I mean, she didn't. She played 24 minutes, I think took four shots. Like, didn't look like the preseason All-American she is. You know, what's going on there? I mean, she just looked out of sync on offense and didn't really – I didn't notice her on defense. I, I don't know if it's a system. I mean, maybe it's something in the effect of with the bigs in there, her game is around the rim – like getting rebounds, offensive putbacks and stuff. But if you have a 6'7 body and a 6'4 body in there, you have to adjust what you do as a smaller forward, so to speak. Yeah, no, it's a great point because Davis at 5'11 would seem to be a better fit, let's say, playing the three. But there are real issues, of course, with her shooting, whether it's perimeter shooting or even, you know, the mid-range, which she's worked hard on, but it's still very much a work in progress. But that was the most amazing thing to me. I love watching Nina Davis's game and the reason I think I love it the most is because there's such an intensity to it that she's so much in the arena at any given moment in a game. And so, you know, somebody misses shots, that'll happen in a game. But to see her not involved the way she was last night was something that caught me off guard. And the question about an injury is uh, one I would have asked as well. So that's, that's really interesting. Let me ask you this before we get beyond UConn and Baylor. Do you think that we will see another team give UConn a better shot than we've seen out of these first two where, like you said, Baylor had a chance to win this game uh, as late as, say, four minutes ago, and Florida State you know, it came down to the final possessions? Um, yes, uh, we definitely will. I mean, it's they have such a killer schedule. I mean, they still have to play Ohio State at home, Texas at home, at Notre Dame, at Maryland, and mm-hmm. South Carolina. So, like, that's five of the other top – 10 teams, the top eight teams. And all of those except for South Carolina before the month of December is out, which is the craziest thing. There's that that first week of December, they play three of the top 20, which is amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to get challenged again. I still think they're going to lose a game or two. I mean, that's not the, the, again, the overreaction of, oh, my God, they're still going to win this. They're going to win 130 straight games in a row, wherever the number would be. Like, that's not happening. They, mm-hmm. they will lose at some point, although – the way they played last night, if they can pull off that last seven minutes, let's say, and do that consistently, they're going to be very tough to beat. And, and Geno players don't tend to regress, so the challenge was likely to get harder as the season goes on. Uh, well, speaking of coaches, I'd love to talk about the big news out of the WNBA today, which is uh, the Indiana Fever hiring Pokey Chapman. Uh, just your initial thoughts about fit and, uh, and, and the way in which this has all come about. Um, I think it's a nice hire for Indiana. I mean, I think Pokey's obviously been in the league for six years in Chicago, knows the WNBA very well, knows the players, knows Indiana. I mean, it's been her thorn in the side, so to speak, uh, for a few years when she was coaching against them. And and I think it's a nice fit. I mean, I think she'll do a good job in Indiana. I I think 
talking to her today, the, one of the key things that, that will help her is she's just going to be a coach there. They have Kelly Krauskopf as the GM, whereas Pokey did both roles for Chicago. So she can just focus on coaching and not worry about the other pieces, so to speak, that go with that title of being a GM. So I think that's going to help her have a more success in Indiana, which is one of the best franchises, most well-run um, in the WNBA right now. Yeah, and, and what's interesting to me is where the rubber meets the road on that, because as, as you know, Poti had a very particular system in Chicago, and by, by pace, the Sky were always at the top of the league or near the top of the league in terms of how quickly they operated. It, it seems like that's the type of thing that is – heaven sent for a player like Marissa Coleman, but overall, do you think, or do you see Indiana building a team based around those ideas or is it more about Poti uh, adjusting her schemes to uh, what Indiana has as of right now, which was already going to be a roster in transition? Well, you know, I talked to her this morning a little bit about this and she said, look, if it isn't broke, why fix it? And Indiana has been very successful for a long time with defense being their staple. But she also said that with Stephanie White coaching them last year, they really did a good job of becoming more of an up-tempo team. Mm-hmm. And I think that will, will factor into, obviously, what you were saying about Pokey's style. I think that will help. I think they have some pieces that will fit well in there. Marissa Coleman's one of them. I'm sure beyond January can play up-tempo yes. and still be a tremendous defender. Um, but I, I think the nucleus will still be there. I can see them building on what Stephanie kind of put in this past year and then having some tweaks from what Pokey wants to put in there on the offensive end. Does this have to be a rebuild in a post-Tamika Catchings world, or is this the type of thing where, look, Indiana, especially having the standard, having the unparalleled record of consecutive playoff appearances, uh, where you just move forward? Um, I think it's a combination. I mean, the, the talent in WNBA, there isn't that much of a difference between the top team and the bottom team as far as talent goes. I mean, same thing in, in, in most professional sports. The talent level is mostly the same. They're obviously star players on certain teams, and, and with catching retiring, Indiana loses one. The, the biggest fear I'd have would be the leadership role, so to speak, for Indiana. But when you think about it, they still have Brian January, who's been there for eight years under catchings and mm-hmm. is a leader herself. So that piece is taken care of. Yes, I mean, you lose a player of catching's ability and talent on and off the court. The word rebuild has to fit in there somewhere. But I think they're going to be okay. I think they'll make the playoffs again, keep that streak going. Are they a team that can compete for the title next year? Maybe, maybe not, depending on, on who comes back and such and injuries, things you can't control. But I think they're in the mix. I mean, they'll be one of the teams, the top eight teams in the league consistently, I think, with the group they have right now, the Nucleus. I mean, Tiffany Mitchell, was a rookie last year, had a great first season, and she's only going to get better. So I think they're going to be good. They may be a player away from being that top, top level, but they're always going to be competitive. Yeah, I mean, that's what I was going to say. To me, how much of a step forward they can take next year has a lot to do with Tiffany Mitchell's growth and making sure that she fits in what Poti does, which it would certainly seem that she does. Uh, so that's really interesting on the WNBA side. But we should get back uh, to some more of the, the college ball. Uh, and a few topics, just, you know, want to hit a few uh, in the spirit of your, uh, your in, it's in case you missed it column that you've started running. Uh, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I started it this past week kind of uh, spanning the, the globe or I guess the country in women's basketball, maybe things that don't get the attention nationally or on television that are interesting across the sport. Well, I, I, it's terrific. I'm, as you know, a religious reader of yours, so I'm looking forward to it. The place I'd love to start from there, uh, you had a video of Jester Shepard 
of Nebraska hitting a half-court shot, uh, which was very entertaining in of itself. But the thing that stuck out to me, and we've talked about Jessica Shepard before, uh, she's five for her first nine from three-point range. Uh, I'm curious how you see her fitting into what is, you know, a rebuild itself uh, in, in that Nebraska program under brand-new coach Amy Williams. Well, I think, first off, it's an unfortunate rebuild because they were going the right direction under Connie Yori as far as having success. And that obviously changed when Coach Yori was asked not to come back this year. Mm -hmm. So I think Shepard is hurt. If if Natalie Romeo hadn't transferred, mm -hmm. they would have had two really, really good players. And I think they'd be near the top of the Big Ten this year. But losing Natalie obviously hurts them. And I think Shepard is going to have to do a lot more for them than probably they would have expected coming in to when she was uh, taken at the school. But I think they're going to be okay. I mean, looking at their schedule, they, I think they're on the road once before the end of December, and that's for for a true road game, I should say. They're, they're in a tournament, I think, in Vegas. But they have one true road game, and that's at Virginia Tech for the ACC Big Ten Challenge. So they have a lot of home games, and that can help build some success that way for them. And she, right, I mean, she can shoot threes now. She's obviously a, a very talented offensive player. But she's going to be asked to do a lot for them to be successful this year. You know, it, it's such a shame because th this type of player, not that Nebraska has a shortage of players uh, who have who've been very talented in state through the years, but uh, someone at the level of a shepherd doesn't come along all that often. And for her to stay home and play for them, the, the, the clock is ticking on their ability to build around her. She, you know, I know it's a strange thing to say uh, shortly into her sophomore season, but it's going to be difficult for them to maximize what she can bring. I mean, if you think of her as, let's say, an analog to what it meant uh, at University of Delaware to have an Elena Deladon, it's going to be a difficult thing to give her what she needs to be able to make the kind of run Nebraska, I think, uh, dreamed of when they brought her in there. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I mean, there's unfortunately a limited shelf life, although it's good in women's basketball that they usually stay for four years for the most sure. part. So you know you have a four-year shelf life as opposed to a one-and-done you see on the guy's side a lot more now. So mm -hmm. they do have two more years they can build around her with pieces. They obviously had a setback this past year, as I said. But I think, I mean, what what is the end goal there? I mean, to win a national championship, that may be a little bit of a stretch for them. But if they can make a deep run in the NCAA tournament, if they can win the Big Ten a couple times, that's probably a successful career, I think, for her and, and for Nebraska. And, uh, and I think it's fair to say if you're in the mix for a Big Ten championship, you're in the mix potentially for a national title. If you look at both Ohio State and Maryland especially, who's a dark horse, in my opinion, to win it all this year. So that'll be fascinating to see. Uh, you touched on uh, Natalie Romeo going to uh, University of Washington, and I am just endlessly entertained by watching them play so far. They seem to have a bottomless pit of shooters uh, around, you know, Kelsey Plum, who is simply remarkable to watch on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you think this Washington team is significantly better than the team that went to the Final Four last year? Or does losing Walton uh, counterbalance a lot of the gains that they have made elsewhere? Well, I think they're better, at least in one area, is they have more bodies. Yeah. I think they had, what, six at the end of last year, maybe? Mm -hmm. that yeah, I mean, play? they played almost no one in the tournament. So, I mean, having nine or ten people will make you better just because you have people you can bring in and give rest to players. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that in itself, just the numbers game helps. Yeah, especially and, when you are taking so many perimeter shots, you know, of the heavy legs later in games. Right. So, I mean, that, that makes a difference. But replacing Walton's going to be tough. 
I think Natalie's going to help them. She's obviously a phenomenal shooter. She's also a very good defender. I was talking to Coach Neighbors the other day, and he was saying one of the big things that she'll add to them is she can guard the other team's best guard, which mm-hmm. puts Plum a step off guarding the second best guard, which would make her life a little bit easier instead of having to play on both ends of the court hard for 40 minutes. So that that can't be lost also. That defensively, they're going to, I think, be better having Natalie and having the depth on their team now. So, yes, I think they can be better than they were last year. They were the tournament darling, so to speak, making the Final Four run. I think they'll be exciting this year. We'll see on Sunday. They're playing at Notre Dame, I think, in the WNAT Final. So that could be an entertaining game. And if so they win that, who knows how far they can go this year. That That is a feeling similar to the actual NCAA tournament game last year against Maryland, where you feel like it's Kelsey Plum versus the world. It'll, it'll be fascinating to see. Do you think they were the second best team at the Final Four last year? Uh, I, I have a clear ranking in my mind as far as second, third, and fourth, but I'm curious what you think. I mean, as far as the game they played or when they got to the final? No, the overall team, the quality of the team. Um, I would think that I could put them number two. I mean, Syracuse was hot as, was hot as hell from the outside, so mm-hmm. they were playing really, really well at that point. So I could see them being the second-best team. But I think Washington, you can make that argument, they were the second-best team there. See, to me, Oregon State, is the team that was the second best team there. And if that team had returned intact, uh, instead of having those huge losses, I think they'd probably be the favorites to win the national title this year. I think that Oregon State team was head and shoulders above any team that's uh, on paper, at least at the start of this year. Well, they lost you to graduation, though, didn't they? Oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm saying had they returned everyone. Right. No, I, I mean, I, look, they were phenomenal last year. They, they were had an unbelievable season and sort of put Oregon State on the map, that, that group of players did yeah. over their entire career would they be the favorite to win the championship this year if those both came back yeah they'd probably be in the mix i'd, I'd give you that definitely yeah well and i'm also partial to rocket scientist centers so you know Ruth Hamlin <laughs> obviously uh is high on the list um let, let, before we go let, let's talk a little bit about we haven't seen much we've only seen one game so far but south carolina specifically kayla davis uh, put up 37 points in your debut for your new team. Not that she's any stranger to success at, at the women's college game, but what do you think so far and how significant is that for a team where we thought they were going to get a disproportionate amount of their production from the interior? Well, that's a huge first game. I mean, against Ohio state too. So it wasn't yeah. like they played a, a team that was not at their level. So that, that was great. I mean, I was impressed by it. I, I was also surprised. I mean, usually transfers don't come in and have that much success right away, but she certainly did. Um, but as you said, it's one game. We'll have a much better judge by the first week in December because they play Louisville next Sunday um, against at the uh, Springfield Hall of Fame game. Then they, I think, play Texas and Duke. Mm-hmm. So that's three legitimate Power 5 teams, two in the top 10. So We'll have a much better idea, I think, where Davis is at that point and where South Carolina is at that point after that little stretch they have um, after Thanksgiving. Yes, I'm very excited about that as well. And that's actually a good segue into uh, our final topic, which is we should talk about the games you're most excited about that people ought to be able to watch uh, over the next week or two uh, heading into the Thanksgiving holiday and beyond. You mean a Thanksgiving feast, so to speak, of games? That that might be a way you'd say it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, there are a few. I mean, it, it's funny. I was actually asked both Coach Mulkey and Oriama last night how great it's been. I know you've been a huge fan of this, Howard, that the first week of the season we had probably eight or nine 
matchups between top 10 teams or top 12 teams. Yes. Which, what more could you ask for and start off a season having so many great games? And Absolutely. being the wise man he is, uh, Coach Oriyama said it's great, but now everyone starts playing the Patsies. Like, you have the one <laughs> or two good games, but then the Patsies come through. And if you look at the schedule for the next couple days, he's not wrong with that. Oh, there is that Texas-Mississippi State game on Sunday. That should mm-hmm. be, I think, a very, very good game. But to answer your question before about what games I'm excited for, there are a few Thanksgiving weekend I think could be really, really good and good for the sport, good to see who kind of where people are early in the season. Maryland, Arizona State's one of them out in Vegas. Maryland has, I think, three easy wins now so far. They won by 40 or 50 points each one against uh, sort of in-state teams that they play. So that will have a better judge. As I said, the South Carolina's got that trio of games to have a better idea where they are. But the one I'm really excited for is this is the Gulf Coast tournament, the Gulf Coast uh, showcase down in Florida. I give Deb Antonelli a lot of credit because she was instrumental in getting this thing together the last couple of years and getting it started. But you have Baylor, Ohio State, Syracuse, and DePaul all playing down there. And they could all meet each other at some point, depending on who wins and who loses. So that's four really good teams that you kind of get a better idea of where they stand coming out of Thanksgiving. And that is a Thanksgiving feast, so to speak, between when those four teams are playing in that tournament down the Gulf Coast uh, Showcase. Well, I'm hungry already. And, and obviously, Deb, it's worth pointing out, uh, is a living goddess. So I'm not surprised that she was able to do that. Uh, tell people where they can read your work. Uh, other than everywhere, and uh, go ahead and let us know about anything coming up that uh, people ought to know about. You know, that's always a good question, Howard. I, I don't have a great answer where you can read my stuff because the joy of the Associated Press is it's cut of stands for all papers, the right. AP. Right. So it, you could find it anywhere. I mean, the, the best place, I guess, to look for it is um, online because I don't know what newspapers even exist anymore as far as running women's basketball coverage. But Twitter is always a good place. I tweet out kind of what I what I write so people have a, a can find it somewhere as a, as a uh, stomping ground, so to speak. So just follow me on Twitter or, or look at me on Twitter. Just Doug Feinberg. It's easy enough. My name, um, and I usually a pretty good warehouse of, of things I write about um, or have written about in the in the recent past. And and Doug is usually there too, just for our listeners. He he shows up. And so you get a lot of interesting value added on his on his Twitter feed as well. But uh, Doug Feinberg, thank you so much for coming on the program. Always great to chat with you uh, about anything. Uh, and for our listeners, I, I hope you have a very, very happy Thanksgiving. Uh, make sure to go ahead and subscribe to Lockdown Women's Basketball on iTunes. You can go ahead and follow us on Twitter uh, at LockdownWBB or go ahead and like us on Facebook, Lockdown Women's Basketball. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful holiday weekend.